I don't want to, in my adult life another man to tell me when to wake up and where I can go and when I can eat five out of the seven days a week until I die. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. Welcome back, my friends, to the Lions of Liberty podcast, where I strive to advance the ideas of liberty through some interesting conversations. And we've got another one here for you today in this, the 174th episode of this program. You can find today's show notes over at lionsofliberty.com slash 174. But first, I need to tell you about today's sponsors at Health Excellence Select because health sharing has completely transformed the way I deal with my healthcare. And with Health Excellence Select, you hardly need to deal with anything so you can actually just focus on being healthy. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. My guest today is the host of the Higher Side Chats, a show which delves into many interesting subjects, some of which might be considered fringe or dare I say it, conspiracy theory. He drinks a little drink. He smokes a little smoke. He is, of course, Greg Carlwood. Greg, are you ready to roar? Hey, man. Yeah, never been more ready. Let's do it. All right. Awesome, dude. Now, Greg, as I mentioned to you before the show, you know, I've really become a big fan of your show the last few months. And I guess since I was a kid, I was always sort of fascinated, like a lot of us, by the kind of the weird stuff out there, the art belt type stuff, UFOs, (laughs) Bigfoot, you name it. But one thing that always kind of turned me off from a lot of these other conspiracy based shows, I guess you might say, is is sort of the hyperbolic fear mongering that often comes along with it. And you really take a totally different approach. To me, you come across as someone who's genuinely interested in seeking the truth. You're really open minded, really curious, and you're not out there trying to sell me, you know, water, anti-fluoridation kits or 17 (laughs) years of food for the coming apocalypse. So it really is a refreshing approach. Yeah, man. Thank you for that. I'm glad people recognize that because that's really why I started the show. I was a big fan of these kind of shows and these kind of topics. But there are only a few different channels in which to get this kind of information. And yes, I always felt like the rapper was just not for me, you know, whether it's a completely conservative right wing Christian slant or something like Coast to Coast that I felt like uh, didn't really go deep enough into some of the subjects. So, yeah, I appreciate that. That is what I set out to do. And it's good to know that it's kind of (laughs) working. What about Coast to Coast is there that you think didn't delve, you know, into deeply on things? Because, I mean, that's probably the most popular show out there that is considered a quote unquote conspiracy show. It's on hundreds and hundreds of AM radio stations. It has millions of listeners. So what criticism would you have of that format? Well, format is exactly the word. It's because they're on traditional radio, they have to take a break every 10 minutes. And I feel like as soon as they start to get into something, they're taking a break. And, you know, the big criticism of of George Norrie is the pun that he's George Snorri. I just I like uh, those kind of jokes and I'm just giving him a hard time. What he does is not easy. Being on the air five nights a week for three, four hours. I mean, yeah, that's intense. But It's probably the format as well as because they're in the traditional radio wheelhouse, they're on a station across the country. And those stations are always the conservative Christian stations. So then when you go to the phone calls, it's always that kind of stuff. And I guess that's kind of my beef. I don't I don't come from that that world. And I just constantly having to get back in the game like, okay, we're back from break and we were talking to Dr. (laughs) Stephen Greer about UFOs. Now, Stephen, 
uh, what do you think UFOs are? And it's like, what do you think UFOs are? I mean, come on, man. You've had this guy on your show 10 times. Like, let's uh, get past the 101 stuff and get a little bit deeper. So it's always very surface. And, and you did quite the opposite. You really dig really, really deep into every subject. You spend a lot of time on your episodes. You can tell just listening to your interviews, the amount of research that you put into anything, which definitely comes across in your questioning. Thanks, man. Yeah, there's probably guys out there who could do it with less work, but I definitely put a whole lot of work in to getting familiar with people's books. Sometimes I have to read three or four books just to get up to speed, and I don't mind doing it. I consider this my job, and a lot of hosts, they don't do that background work, and it really shows on the interviews. And you're talking to people that I think are some of the brightest, most interesting minds in the alternative community that can't get a good platform you really owe it to yourself to do the due diligence and to your audience because sometimes the host is just like, oh, let me get this guy and I'll just throw him up there and we'll have a casual conversation and he'll do all the work to make my show interesting, you know? And I think that's a flaw. And I think that happens in a lot of the podcasts that are out there now because they see the big guys who can do it very casually, uh, like a guy like Joe Rogan, who has a whole lifetime of casual conversation and practicing the art of language. You know, a, a guy who's uh, just getting out of college, I don't think if he doesn't have the background can really go that same route and just try to make casual conversations. Sometimes preparation uh, is a little bit better. No, it's super important. And that's kind of the approach I've taken to my interviews and my shows as well, because, you know, there's a lot of shows out there in my niche and like the libertarian sort of community. And a lot of them are good in terms of there's a lot of information, but, you know, they're not really conversations. They don't come across as real conversations. And a lot of them come across as a scripted, you know, I'm going to read back these 10 questions and you're going to give your 10 answers that you give on every single other show you do. Yeah. And that's what we're just going to put out there. But if it's not unique or interesting or different than the 10 other interviews this guy did, then, you know, it's kind of a waste of time, waste of everyone's time. Yeah. Then what are you doing? Exactly. I always try to listen to people's previous interviews and touch on that work, but we're going to stray from the traditional script because some guys, especially if they've been authors for a long time, they're used to doing the rounds on the promotion circuit and they're used to their 10 or 15 bullet points and everybody just kind of plays along. I've learned that as I've gotten bigger. I didn't realize that when I first started that it's kind of a dog and pony show a lot of times with hosts that have relationships with marketing people and uh, certain publishing houses and then you just you do the dance. And a lot of times the content really is lacking a lot of heart because it's just it's a commercial, basically. <laughs> exactly. Well said. It is a commercial, an extended infomercial. So, Greg, how did all this start for you? How did you first get the inspiration to start your own show, your own better version of the kind of stuff you've been hearing out there with the higher side chats? Man, you know, well, I always just wanted to do something that wasn't the typical nine to five. And it's tough. You know, I call the year or the 10 years of retail I had the lost decade because when you get out of school, there really is no guidance for someone who wants to be independent and an entrepreneur. They only tell you how to get a good job. And I don't want in my adult life another man to tell me when to wake up and where I can go and when I can eat five out of the seven days a week until I die. That doesn't appeal to me. Yeah, you did so, that for the first 18 years, you know? Right, yeah. And uh, I think that's all part of conditioning, but um, you know, that's a whole nother thing. I just, I wanted to do something independent. I started doing the podcast as a comedy thing. That was my first love, but I loved guys like Bill Hicks and George Carlin who put conspiratorial themes in their comedy, put nuggets of truth deep in there. And I loved that kind of stuff. So I started going that route and then, I just, I felt like I wasn't different enough. And it was a mushroom trip in the comedy store condo with Ari Shafir and a couple other 
pretty high level comics. And I just felt like such a poser. I'm like, what are you doing here, dude? And the mushrooms told me to make it more about my real true love of conspiracy. And ever since then, uh, that's where I've gone. And it's been pretty successful. So you were kind of trying to maybe parrot other shows that you knew about other comedy shows and and kind of people in that community and not really necessarily being true to yourself and your own passions. And, and that experience, I guess, gave you that revelation that no, I have to just be more of me and really get in deeply into the subjects that you're actually interested in. Yes, I definitely credit the mushroom with that. And without a template, without some kind of guidance, yeah, it took a while. I definitely stumbled through the gate for the first little while. But I think anybody, if you just start doing what you want to do and you keep fine tuning it and refining it, you can look at it from the beginning and judge it and say, look, I know this isn't going to be the thing that gets me out of my shitty job at GameStop. But, you know, maybe if I keep going in this direction, I'll fine tune it and it'll end up being great. And that's what you got to do. I would tell people not to quit, even if you feel like um, your product isn't up to snuff yet. But these nine to five jobs, that's for the birds, man. (laughs) Uh, I'm with you, man. So is this your full time gig then? The higher side chat is is this like all that Greg Carlwood does right now? It is pretty much. I mean, I also have a conspiratorial T-shirt line that's attached to it called conspiracies. But yeah, pretty much. I only really leave the house to go mail a shirt at the post office, but It can be isolating, though, because everyone I know, every friend I have has that nine to five job. And so I spend a lot of time sitting around watching reruns of How I Met Your Mother, you know, (laughs) sitting letting Netflix play through for the fifth, sixth, seventh time. But um, it is nice to not have an alarm clock, to not have a boss and just really decide what you want to do. I'm pretty much 30 and retired. That's fantastic, man. I mean, I'm somewhere in an in-between state myself. I have a freelance career out here in Los Angeles. So, you know, I, I work when I work and but I do have the freedom to turn down work, accept work I like and yeah. that kind of thing. And it also gives me the flexibility to work on stuff like this in my, I guess, quote unquote, free time. I consider none of it free time. It's all my time that I choose what to do with. And <laughs> right. that's a better way to look at life, you know, instead of just because, like you said, we are conditioned from a very young age. We're conditioned that, OK, we got to go to school. We got to go through K through 12. And then um, if we want to have a good job, we got to go through four more years of college, go into massive debt to do that. Then we've got to, you know, save up, save up, save up, work at a company. Eventually, we'll save enough money to put a down payment on a house, on a mortgage and go into even more debt for that. And Mm -hmm. of course, now we got to keep working the rest of our lives because we have all this debt to pay. And suddenly our whole life is dedicated to working and paying off debt. And that just seems like a miserable way to live. Right. And I think that midlife crisis is when you finally wake up and you're like, shit, I can't go back in time. I've lost three decades of my life probably to some company, to some guy who's never going to make me partner. And I can't do anything else because my resume only shows this. So I guess I'll just buy a motorcycle and keep doing what I'm doing. And it's a sad reality for some. Very much so. So, Greg, let's get into a a little of the meat now of some of the stuff you cover in your show. And I don't want to blow my audience's mind too quickly. So maybe we'll get into some of the weird, weird, weird stuff later on. But why don't we just start off with, you know, what are some of the conspiracy theories, I guess, that you've discussed or looked into that seem, I guess, the most, I don't want to say legitimate to say others aren't legitimate, but with the most evidence behind them, the most compelling theories that you can just say, even if you don't know the exact theory to be true or not, that there's definitely something to it. there's definitely some, you know, absolute hard legitimacy. Yeah, I mean, everybody is different. And I guess for me, I never really had a strong emotional reaction to controversial subjects and theories. And I realized when 9-11 happened and we started looking into some alternative things in my group of friends, it really drove a wedge between us. Some of us had really aggressive emotional opinions and couldn't fathom that the government would be involved. And other people were like, 
yeah, it doesn't really surprise me. I mean, everything's corrupt. I mean, why would this be any different? And so I know what you're saying. Some people, when you bring up certain ideas, they do get really emotional. And I'd say, from my perspective, it's not being open-minded and looking at the facts, but I'd say the history of false flags is a big thing we tackle. It's kind of ridiculous when you look at all the wars and conflicts, how many of them start with a false flag, which is, of course, basically a country attacking itself or staging an attack to justify war. I mean, the Gulf of Tonkin incident is probably the most well-established one at this point that got us into Vietnam. And I'd say 9-11 was just another event in a long line of false flags. I mean, look at what happened in the post-9-11 world. Look at what it was used for. The Patriot Act and going over to the Middle East, that's still not done. So I think you can look at a lot of these events and just see why they take place and look at the larger template of history and it becomes a little more apparent. I'd say also that power is largely consolidated to just a few groups, the Bilderberg Commission, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission. These are the groups that really run the planet in a sense, because when Obama was running the first time, I was really excited. I drank the Kool-Aid and I was like, wow, this guy is actually going to be the internet candidate. He's not Hillary Clinton. That's the establishment candidate. So we got this internet guy. I was starting to make a living on the internet. Exactly. I really did. And that, that will never happen again. But I voted for the guy and I was really excited about his cabinet. I was like, wow, we're going to get somebody who picks scientists, who picks great authors and economists. I was hearing people talking about he was going to choose the author of Freakonomics for his economic advisor. I'm like, that is so amazing because I love that guy. And I just thought we were going to have a really radical change and it didn't happen. When you look at who he chose for his cabinet, it's all CFR members. And that's how you can tell. That's the people who really run the planet, the think tanks behind the puppets, the puppet masters, the apex of the conspiratorial pyramid. I think it's those groups. The World Bank is another one. The uh, World Trade Organization right now with the TPP, things are going through where we have these groups that nobody voted for that are having policies that supersede the rules of a government. Like, um, I know you've talked to Jen Briney. She's big on the World Trade Organization's labeling laws. Uh, a lot of countries aren't even able to label GMOs in their own country because they've signed on to this agreement that this nebulous group oversees. I mean, what is that but a one world government? I mean, is this a conspiracy theory or is this just the reality of powerful people consolidating wealth and power? That's a really good example is, uh, you know, I recently spoke to Jen Briney, as you mentioned, of Congressional Dish. And, and I mean, she puts out a lot of stuff that you could take and say, this is the same thing Alex Jones is saying with the New World Global Order, only she's actually, you know, has gone through bills and shown, look, I'm not being crazy. I'm showing you this is a global type governance that is coming into place through all these documents and presenting you the evidence. At some point, we have to say, you know, you can call it conspiracy and use that word to sort of downplay something. But when you have documentation and you have certain facts, at some point, it's just a fact. It's just reporting what's occurring in the world. It, it doesn't all have to be the realm of theory. Right. Exactly. I'm with you. It definitely doesn't. And I love that I've had Jen on the show twice now. And this time around, she had gotten a little more conspiratorial. I don't want to put words in her mouth, but she, <laughs> I felt like, was drifting more to my side. And I'm just like, that's what's going to happen when you really look at what's going on. And Jen is probably, I love having her on because she does such great work and she really knows her stuff, but she is probably the most tame guest that hits my show. Oh, for sure. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> but it's important. You know, we can talk about the skull and bones and the Illuminati and all these different groups and we can... Here, talk about the rumors and the whispers of things that are going on. 
But when you look at the meat of what's going through Congress, what's being written down on paper, I mean, that is the crux of these bigger ideas. That's where we see them implementing these things. Let's tick back a second, back to 9-11, because I know that's going to be a sticky point for a lot of people. It's kind of something you can't win on in a way, because if you even question the official story at all, I mean, it doesn't mean aliens blew up the towers if you're just asking questions about some right. of the inconsistencies in the stories. But if you question that, a lot of people will say, look, I mean, we don't need to go into conspiracy theories for this. You know, the U.S. government has been overreaching for years. It's been, you know, causing aggression in the Middle East. It's killed a lot of innocent people. It makes perfect sense that some of those people would come back and want to attack us. So there's no reason to look deeper into it. But And then there's the other side of it where you say, well, OK, but look, there's so many strange things that happened that day, so many strange connections. And when you combine that with the results of it with the Iraq war that was justified basically based on 9-11 with the Patriot Act and so many other onerous laws with the NSA spying all these things that were seemingly put into place you know at the the snap of a finger right after 9-11 it does make you think a little bit you know right even if you don't go quote-unquote full conspiracy you got to at least think is something kind of weird going on here so I guess what are the biggest sticking points for you on 9-11 what are some of the actual facts you can point at to to point at that something is at least amiss with the official story and and I just before just to butt in before you even start I mean one to me that's obvious is the 28 redacted pages from the actual official report now most people would expect the official report to already possibly be a cover-up of some kind so the fact that they need to actually cover up a portion of a potential cover-up to tell you something's weird Right, right. And I definitely am skeptical of those official commissions, just like the Warren Commission with JFK. I mean, these things are put in place to ease people's minds because people can't have something that's unanswered. So the government comes out, they do a little dance and they give you an answer. It's not correct. It's just something to fill your mind. And a lot of people accept those things. It happens a lot in the UFO realm where you'll see something strange. and Everyone's like, what was that? And the government comes out and says it was swamp gas. And people are like, oh, well, okay, now I have an answer. Yeah, but you could spin the wheel of random answers and give you that. And uh, I think in 9-11, some of those things you mentioned that are in the aftermath of it are really important. And people need to ask themselves what we've seen implemented since then, the uh, wars in the Middle East. I mean, it's more than that. I, we have occupied massive amounts of territory. We almost have uh, our own 50 second, third, and fourth states over there. You know, it's pretty crazy. And you have to look at those things, the Patriot Act, and ask yourself, would that have been possible? Would all the surveillance and NSA stuff be possible if it weren't for 9-11? 9-11 was so needed for that. And I think that gives you the answer. Also, a lot of people have hangups about, well, why would George Bush and Dick Cheney kill their own people? They wouldn't do this to their own people. And that's a fallacy. I don't think that They consider us their people. We're not rich. I think the 1%, this upper crust, they are looking at everyone as peons, as as batteries, you know, as people just smart enough to run the machines of their companies, obedient workers. And, you know, they killed, what, maybe a couple thousand people. What are they doing all the time? You know, poverty is one of the most ingenious weapons ever. And they use it against people in this country. They use it against people around the world. I mean they're responsible for a lot of death and no one bats an eye. So I don't understand why, because they're Americans, George Bush would have a problem with it. And I'm not saying George Bush necessarily did it himself, but he's part of a larger cabal, I would say, that definitely is instrumental in orchestrating these kind of things. I think George Bush is just a puppet. You know, he seems like a goofball, but his dad was definitely not a puppet. And I don't think Dick Cheney was. I think those guys are more clued into what was going on. But You can't say exactly who did it, but I just think that if on that day, if you looked at the two towers falling 
and you didn't think that looked odd. You didn't think there was something there that was amiss. I probably can't convince you, but there are reports of people know about Building 7, I hope, but a third building that fell that day. There's actually reports that even more fell that day. That's the really confusing thing. I would recommend people look into the work of Dr. Judy Wood. She is now, a- that I hadn't heard before. I mean, I've, I've seen the Building 7 video. I've, I've heard reports of that, how that collapsed in a similar manner to the other two towers, but I I never heard there were even more buildings now they're saying were also yeah. fell in the same way. Yeah, I think up to seven. And this was crazy and blew my mind. But if you look at the book, what happened on 9-11, Judy Wood's book, on the very back cover, she shows a map of the World Trade Center complex before 9-11 and after. And she highlights where the buildings fell. I mean, these are photographs. And clearly, more buildings fell than were told. And I don't know how much that matters, but it definitely shows you that what was reported and what happened, there's fallacies there. And if you dig deeper, you got to ask why. And I think there's just not really, you don't have a smoking gun on 9-11. You really don't. But if you look at the history of buildings that have had fire, they've never fallen like that. I mean, it just, it looks wrong to me. And then I think that when you dig deeper, you can find justifications for that. And I think you can find reasons why a global elite would want to do something like a 9-11. It's just another false flag in a long string. I think the Titanic was one, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, Nero's fires of Rome. I mean, it, it's happened time and time again. What's the Titanic conspiracy? Because that's one you don't really hear talked about too much. <laughs> well, what's the uh, kind of connection to our our modern, I guess, uh, system there? Because it does have a connection to, I guess, our current banking structure with the Federal Reserve. It definitely does. Uh, I had a guest, John Hamer, who has done a lot of research into this. But J.P. Morgan, one of these elite bankers that is part of the cabal that runs things. I mean, he brought the White Star shipping line in 1909. and that was three ships, and one of them was the Titanic. And he actually had a different ship that was damaged that they actually switched it around. And so he basically put people on a ship that was damaged that he needed to get rid of anyway, renamed it the Titanic, did a little bait and switch there. It's kind of a long, complicated story, but John Hamer has a lot of evidence that supports this. And on the ship was a bunch of the aristocrats who were opposition to the Federal Reserve. And J.P. Morgan himself was supposed to be on the Titanic, but he got sick and didn't go at the last minute. Also, he had a bunch of priceless artifacts that were supposed to be on the ship, but of course, he pulled those off too. So there's indications that J.P. Morgan knew this ship was going down. So that goes down just, I think, a year later. I think it was 1909. And then on, in 1910, Jekyll Island, that's where the people who met and created the Federal Reserve had their secret meetings on Jekyll Island, and they actually pushed through the Federal Reserve on Christmas Eve shortly after. And I think all this stuff happened between 1909 and 1913, so it's like a very quick succession. And how funny that the opponents to the Federal Reserve were now killed in this accident. And there was another weird element that another ship that J.P. Morgan had, I believe it was called the Californian, this was the ship that was in the nearby area where the Titanic sank. The Californian was out there in the ocean and only had one thing in its cargo hold, 3,000 sweaters and blankets. Wow. What's that's, that about? That's uh, <laughs> So what's the theory there, that they were going to come rescue people, I guess, with that ship? Or I mean, what? That is the theory, is that they had some kind of contingency thing where they were going to rescue people, and people were rescued. The key people that were supposed to die, or, well, the key people that were opponents of the Federal Reserve conveniently died, I guess you could say. But 
then JP Morgan is, is speculated to be one of these hands that is a shareholder of the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve, no one really knows who the shareholders are, but I'm sure if, uh, you know, JP Morgan helped orchestrate this by using his ships. And he also got a huge insurance check, which is another connection to 9-11. Larry Silverstein, who owned the World Trade Centers, got a huge insurance check for them falling. So this is, again, how the elite work. You know, they carry out these things and they're making money on the front end, on the back end and everywhere in between. It's just fraud and corruption. But, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to find out that if you looked at the Federal Reserve shareholders, J.P. Morgan and his legacy has a hand in that for what they did to help it get pushed through. But that stuff's all secret, even though this is the quote unquote public institution. It's not public at all. I mean, it's kind of a public private quasi partnership at best but you know they're essentially their own company that can just print as much money and do whatever they want to with money as they want and yet we can't even see who's actually the shareholders of this company which seems a little crazy <laughs> it is it is that's a huge problem and people might say to some of this stuff you know i'm kind of paraphrasing a huge body of work done by sure, this I guy mean, you, you do entire multi-hour episodes on these topics so we're just scratching the surface on some right. things here and that's why I say the name John Hamer. For anyone who doubts what I'm talking about, just go read his books. You know, put in a couple of days and read his two books and see if you find these things to be interesting connections, because I definitely do. Um, there's also weird stuff about the surviving members of the crew and the inconsistent reports they gave. The captain of the crew had some note that said, like, if something like, you know, people sleep all the time, but he didn't sleep in his chambers. He slept on a stool, like on a stool out in the lobby and said, if something happens, wake me. Like there's indications that the captain himself was put in place to make sure this happened. There's a lot of weird stuff. Uh, and I suggest people look into it, but you do have to speculate a little bit because the smoking gun evidence is outside of our grasp. It just is, but you can look at these patterns and you can look at the way these rich psychopaths behave. And I think you can fill in the holes for yourself. And some people might think that's taking liberties and they want that smoking gun evidence. But if you're going to have the bar that high before you start being critical of their actions, you're just going to be, you know, a victim of their vampirism forever, you know, their economic vampirism. And it's just, uh, it's an unfortunate situation that some people set that bar so high because they are a well-oiled machine and they don't let smoking gun evidence get out all that much. Yeah, for sure. And for a lot of this stuff, we might not have one piece of quote unquote smoking gun evidence, but sometimes there's just enough weird coincidences to make you think. And Greg, we're going to get into some even weirder stuff in a bit. But first, I need to take a minute out to tell everyone a little bit more about our sponsors at Health Excellence Select. Because as someone who purchases my own health insurance, I had become extremely frustrated at my escalating premiums and deductibles. After the implementation of Obamacare, and this forced me to seek an alternative, and I found that alternative in the concept of health sharing, where groups of like-minded individuals get together to voluntarily cover each other's medical costs. Health Excellence Select will help you take charge of your health care without having to deal with all the costs and hassle of handling paperwork and spending hours on the phone with bureaucrats just trying to get paid. They will handle all the dirty work for you while also providing tons of valuable tools to help you stay healthy. Listeners of this program can get the VIP treatment and get signed up directly by my great representative, Jeff Cantor. Give him a call at 440-283-6849. Tell him Mark from Lions of Liberty sent you. Until then, head on over to lionsofliberty.com slash health for more information. Greg, one criticism I'll hear uh, whenever anybody brings up any kind of conspiracy theory whatsoever, even some of the most tame conspiracies like JFK. I mean, I don't know if it's 
tame for him or his family, but it, it's one that's almost accepted that to be a conspiracy by many people, by I think majority of the population in most yeah. polls. But even something like that will get, especially from kind of the realm I'm coming from, the libertarian side, many libertarians will say, well, look, we're telling you how the government's inefficient and can hardly do anything right. So what makes you think that the government or anybody in the government could possibly orchestrate these events and not only orchestrate them, but cover them up for so long? Like, they'll say something like 9-11 would take so much coordination. How are there not people coming out and saying, hey, look, I was approached about, you know, planning this event and I helped put this motion, this event in place that killed all these people. Uh, you know, how are there no whistleblowers and how is this even organized by an organization that we generally consider to be inefficient and, you know, at best comical at times. That is a valid criticism. And I think the problem comes with the language of just labeling it the government. I mean, yeah, there's tiers, though. You know, there are definitely inefficient tiers and there are definitely people working in government and there's a lot of bureaucracy and, you know, you go to the DMV and that sucks. I mean, I get all that. There's definitely that. But there are also pockets of highly efficient groups within the government. I mean, like I said, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission and the Bilderberg Group. These are the one percenters um, that go and they meet once a year at the Bilderberg meetings and they determine the policy going forward. I think that's where we get things like the Patriot Act and NSA surveillance. And I think it comes out of these meetings. They dictate the narrative going forward. So I don't think these people got rich being inefficient. I think, uh, you know, if you look at corporate leaders and the members of these groups, they're the ones orchestrating things behind the curtain and they're very efficient. I think that they hide under the cover of, well, government can't get anything done. That's a, a big contention I had with Bill Maher, the comedian. I used to be a pretty liberal guy. I don't really buy into any of that anymore. But growing up in high school and college, I listened to his show all the time. And 9-11 was the first big thing where he would not go there at all. And he said, you know how I know George Bush wasn't behind 9-11? It worked. And I'm just like, you know, that's such a dismissive thing to say. I get what you're saying. I get the idea behind it, but that's so naive. That's I mean, so the fucking Iraq naive. war worked. I mean, if you're going by that standard, it got about, Saddam Hussein out of power. Right. So. How about the idea that George Bush did not win the popular vote and he's still president? How about that? There's a conspiracy there and that worked. You know, when they really want something done, these select few, it gets done. Very interesting. Now, <laughs> there's actually a couple more things I want to touch on conspiracy wise, because there's one I heard you talk about that. I've never really heard before. It's really, really interesting. And it's the theory that goes along with alcohol prohibition. What's the theory behind there? Because as far as I knew, it was just a bunch of housewives that were sick of their husbands drinking and lobbied to get alcohol banned. So what's the theory behind that? Right, man. I felt the same thing that you feel. It, it just seemed like this weird pocket of time where the religious housewives got something done. And that's just not true. I mean, I had another guest David Bloom is his name, and he wrote a book, and he's very much an advocate of this. But the Prohibition era was actually about, again, profits for the 1%, and it was about energy. Because back before Prohibition, a lot of farmers and people, they had their own alcohol stills to run tractors, to run equipment, to run cars. Cars used to actually run on alcohol. And Rockefeller, they used to make oil lamps at this time, and they had this byproduct of gasoline. And this comes up a lot that the 1%, these rich elites, they are selling us their trash, their byproducts from their industries and selling it to us as something we need. Gasoline in that case, and also fluoride in the water is a big conspiracy. And people always roll their eyes. 
Oh, fluoride in the water. Here's this thing. Well, fluoride is a byproduct of the aluminum industry. So instead of throwing away and disposing of their trash, they convinced us that it's good for our teeth and they put it in our water. And now they sell their garbage to us and we buy it and we consider it to be something that is beneficial. I mean, that is all just spin and propaganda and they have the tools to do that. If fluoride is in the water, why don't they just put in vitamins, something non-controversial, then we don't have to worry about it. But vitamins aren't a byproduct of their industry. So back to prohibition, it really is the same story. They wanted to get people to use only gasoline. People can't make their own gasoline from a still necessarily the way they can alcohol. So prohibition comes in and for a decade, they make it illegal. It's illegal to make, it's illegal to drink, it's illegal to have. And it's all under the guise that it's about consumption. But then 10 years later, people want to consume it again and they put it through. But what do people not do? You know, they don't use it as a fuel anymore. So the Rockefellers got what they wanted. That's the same reason marijuana is illegal. It's just a longer form of prohibition. Marijuana got in the way of the textile industries. You can make hemp rope. You can make paper. It's a lot easier to grow weed. I've done it myself. It grows in three or four months as opposed to a tree that takes years and years and years to grow. So it's a lot more efficient. But people can control it themselves. People can grow it in their own spare bedrooms like I've done. And you could use it for other things. I smoked mine, but you could definitely use it for <laughs> textile purposes. And that's what they've taken away from us. The ability to kind of make your own way with uh, your own fuels and your own textiles. Like they took that away from the American people and they have given us things that are byproducts of their industries that they control and that's how they've secured their wealth. The other big thing they did is the education system. If you look at who contributed to the original Board of Education, Henry Ford and his assembly line process and the Rockefellers, they wanted to make sure that they didn't have competition. So they just dumbed us down. I mean, look at how education has gone since the institution of the department of it. It's always been downhill. I mean, everyone knows that. We're like 20th in math, 40th in science. America's not number one. And they're getting what they paid for. There's a reason why we're not number one. They don't want competition. But that's the thing behind uh, prohibition. And you'll find that if you look at all these weird pockets of history, there's a conspiratorial view and a through line that connects them all. And it's always the same motivations, the same people, and it's about consolidating wealth and power. But I love that one. The prohibition one blew my mind. Yeah, it's crazy stuff, man. And speaking of education, I interviewed uh, Alex Newman, one of the authors of Crimes of the Educators a few months ago, and and he really goes into extensive detail on, they have all these documents. Um, I believe that Charlotte Iserbeet revealed a lot of them in the 80s. All these documents really spelling out how the education system was specifically designed, uh, at least in this modern age, in the 20th century, to dumb people down. And I mean, you can argue with the conspiracy theory if you want, but look at the results. That's exactly what's happening. We have high literacy rates. We have people that are, I mean, if you look at a, an eighth grade test from like the, the 1900s, I mean, the 1800s, you're blown away that kids can solve these kind of problems because most adults today can't answer uh, half the questions on these quizzes. So it's, it's very clear that the population, whether it's a conspiracy theory or not, has been dumbed down over the years. And I'm sure there are many factors there, but there are documents, when you have documents specifically showing you certain things and you see the result, at some point, you kind of got to throw your hands in the air and say, okay, there might actually be something to this. Yeah. Amen. Look at the results, whether it's education, 9-11, prohibition, marijuana illegalization, uh, the war on drugs. The results are always less freedom for the people and more money for the elite. I mean, it's not an accident. Now, Greg, I mean, I'm already towing the line a little bit here, tiptoeing around <laughs> it because- you know, the conspiracy word, you all know it more than anyone that that word is a trigger word for many people. If you even bring up something that can be 
conceived as a conspiracy theory, it immediately will often be shut down just by that very fact. So, uh, you know, I've been treading lightly. We've mostly been just touching historical events, things that are very much based in fact, you know, that we can acknowledge, that we can look at, uh, whether it's the Titanic, whether it's Prohibition, these things definitely occurred and happened. So, but there's one event, and I would call it kind of the OG of modern conspiracy theories, and I'm going to touch on it just so I'm not accused of being too much of a wuss in this interview, and that is the moon landing. And (laughs) this is one where, yeah, I mean, I remember even being a kid, people joking about the moon landing being faked, and I always kind of brushed it off. And even... Even today, I would say I fall on the side of it probably did happen, but there's certainly some weird things that have come up about it. And the longer that mankind goes without revisiting the moon, I think it's been like 43 years, the more suspicious I get of it. Because, I mean, look at all this industry already going to space. Uh, You got Richard Branson planning flights to space. But if 43 years ago we could go to the moon, you'd think that 40 years later it would be even easier. And why isn't there a commercial, you know, all sorts of commercial exploration going on in the moon? So it's that stuff more than anything else that actually makes me question it more so i know you're also skeptical of the moon thing so why don't you just give us a few talking points on why we might want to question the i guess the official story of the moon landing (laughs) right right the moon landing super interesting to me my opinion is that the footage is clearly fake the footage we're shown in the moon landing there is no way in my mind that is real footage now that does not mean we didn't go to the moon in secret it does not mean that you know we didn't get there and it just isn't the footage we were shown I can't say if we went or didn't go, but there is a lot of evidence that suggests we might not be able to with things like the Van Allen radiation belt. But if we're just examining the footage and saying, how can we look at this footage and know it's not right? I mean, if you look at the moon rover, there are no treads in front or behind it. If you look at the the module that landed, there is no impact crater below it. It was like these things were set in place by a crane because there's no track. So there's no impact crater. There's also pictures that have the same background. You can tell that they use the same background. If you think about the moon landing images, there's a rocky ridge behind most of the pictures and a black background. That rocky ridge, if it was real, should be different in 360 degrees. But yet there are different pictures where it looks like they placed different objects in front of the same background. And I'm not making this up. You can look at the pictures and... Also, the telemetry data, all the data, the ones and zeros of how they got there and all the math, they lost that. NASA doesn't have that. <laughs> isn't that it? convenient? Yeah, they don't have it. So isn't that, that seems funny? like the most important data to hold on to ever in the history of mankind? Well, they I don't mean, even have the footage. They lost the footage. They weren't going to something. I don't know. Just a month ago. See, the story goes back. Well, and what do you forth. mean they lost the footage? So like the footage we see now is not obviously not the original footage. They, they don't have the original film anymore, you're saying? Yeah, they lost that. And that's convenient. You think these are things they would hold on to. But another reason people ask, well, why would this all be fake? Why wouldn't we be shown it? And it's like, well, if you really think about it, it doesn't even make sense that they would show it. NASA came out of the military. NASA is a is an organization that shows that's working on America's biggest secrets. Do you think we're going to just put that out on television? So NASA is a bit of a PR organization, a bit of a front for what they're really doing. And When I heard that from one of my guests, Chris Knowles, I was like, yeah, you know, it doesn't even make sense that they would put our most technological secrets on the air like that. Why would they do that? Just so Russia and China can know exactly what we're doing and we just put it out there right in the open. So I think that there is a justification for why it wouldn't be real footage. But I think then you can look at some of those things I mentioned and anyone can look up, you know, 
a hundred reasons the moon landing footage is fake and you'll find people just rattling off all kinds of things. I think the tread and the impact crater and the exact same background in the photo are the most compelling to me, but there are other things like there's a rock that has a C carved out of it, which is common for stage props. I think that you could argue that was a hair in the lens or something, so I don't even use that one. But you don't have to. There's another one where the guy's helmet, the astronaut's helmet, has a strange light source coming from it that does not seem natural. It's like uh, bouncing off the reflection. Well, that could be a, definitely a stage light. That would make total sense. So, But it could be anything, because I'm not in space, I can't tell. But when I see a moon rover that doesn't have any tracks, and I see the same background used, and I know that they lost the telemetry data, these are the things that I point to. So I think it's, to me, pretty clear. But also, one other thing I would add, uh, I interviewed a guy recently, Jeremy Corbell. He's a documentary filmmaker, and he interviewed astronaut Edgar Mitchell, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, who is one of the Apollo astronauts who apparently went there. Now, Edgar Mitchell, if you ask him about the moon landings, he'll argue to his death that it happened, that he was there, that he walked on the moon. But he did note that when kids across the country, because all these astronauts go out and they talk to kids in schools, kids ask him, what was it like to walk on the moon? And he, honest to God, cannot remember. You would think a guy who's walked on the moon would definitely know what it was like. But Edgar Mitchell said his memories of actually walking on the moon, although he's 100% convinced he did it, are fuzzy, and he can't quite remember what it was like to walk on the moon. And then there are the reports that the astronauts had to be hypnotized after the moon landing. They all went in for uh, psychiatric evaluations and these kind of things. Well, they could easily, after what had been done with MK Ultra, they could easily tell these guys, they could implant memories of them walking on the moon. And I'm getting really crazy. I'm getting stuck in the weeds Get in here, there. But... <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's what you <laughs> but, do best, man. I'm just saying it is totally possible. If you look at the reports, if people want documentation, look at documentation from MKUltra and the mind control experiments. They can get people off the street to murder, you know, like it's no thing. And there's documentation that they can actually program people to do these things. So is it not possible to put these astronauts through rigorous testing where they're sleep deprived and then put them through these psychological hypnotic regressions and all this kind of stuff and then make them feel like they went on the moon, put them up in some rocket, bring it back down and say, oh, you were on the moon. We know you were there. And the story just takes off. I don't think it's implausible to think that, but I think it's also really interesting that one of the astronauts, his most pivotal moment in life, he himself says, I can't remember what it was like. That is very strange because even if he was part of some massive conspiracy and he was lying, he might just make up what it was like to uh, walk on the moon. So it's it's even more strange that he would just act like he doesn't remember because that yeah. that plays more into possible hypnotism, brainwashing type stuff that you're talking about. Yeah, so. I think I think they were manipulated. I don't think the astronauts themselves even know that they're lying. I mean, have you seen Buzz Aldrin? He became like a raging alcoholic. He was. There were times Didn't where he punched were, a guy in the face who, uh, who asked him yeah. about the moon. I, I saw that. Yeah. He was also wandering up and down his streets, like wasted drunk, stumbling around, talking about secrets he has to keep and weird stuff like that. I mean, well, in fairness, I've been caught doing similar things, but we don't need to talk <laughs> about that. Fair. Yeah. I mean, it's a slippery slope, but I think that people should look into that if they have any doubt. And I think the more you look into it, the less doubt you have rather than more. A lot of people who who call bullshit on conspiracies, they've never looked at it. I would just say, look at it. Look at it deeply. And if you come out thinking I'm wrong, so be it. And Greg, what you just said right there really does, I think, sum up why your attitude is so refreshing because you're not 
dogmatic really about anything, even the stuff you really believe in strongly. You just try to say, look, here's the things I've uncovered. Here's what my very well-researched and very well-educated guests have uncovered. And here's what I think. But I'm not Alex Jones. I'm not telling you the world's going to end. I'm not trying to sell you all the uh, apocalypse products. I'm just trying to get to the truth and get to the bottom of things. And I think that really does come across in what you're doing, Greg. So I really want to commend you on that. And uh, guys, if you think uh, us talking about the moon landing stuff was kind of weird, trust me, you ain't seen nothing yet. So <laughs> please do check out Greg's podcast, The Higher Side Chat. So Greg, before I let you go, why don't you just do a quick summary of how people can find the show, how they can contact you, and how they can become more involved with The Higher Side Chats. For sure, man. Well, if you're listening to a podcast, I assume you know how to get them. It's on iTunes. It's everywhere you can find podcasts, but also thehiresidechats.com. Also, my t-shirt company is at conspiratees.net. But that's pretty much it. If you have a hard time with podcasts, the show is also up on YouTube. So that is the way to listen and uh, be prepared to get weird. <laughs> Greg Carl with The Higher Side Chats. Greg, keep up the great work and take care, man. Honor and a pleasure. Thanks. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the great Greg Carlwood of the Higher Side Chats today. If you found our conversation even a little bit intriguing, I highly encourage you to check out the Higher Side Chats. As I said, Greg's got a really great approach to these matters. He's not dogmatic. He's not trying to sell you snake oil. He's just an honest guy that's searching for some truth out there in the world, and he does a bang-up job at it. So please do check it out. I know I'm going to get a little bit of flack probably from some people for doing a quote-unquote conspiracy show. It's Something I've made an effort to avoid in many ways for a very long time. But hey, after 174 episodes, I'm just going to start doing some things that I want to do sometimes. That's just how it's going to work. And hopefully you guys also like the things we're doing here. We've expanded our show format. We're doing three days a week now, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Friday, of course, being the Felony Friday podcast. So hey, if you enjoy the show, if you enjoy our new format, if you enjoy interviews like the one I did today with Greg Carlwood, please do us a favor and subscribe over on iTunes. Subscribe on Stitcher Radio. Subscribe however you listen to this podcast because clicking that subscribe button really does do wonders to help get the show in front of more people, get it in more earbuds out there. And while you're there, if you could also leave us a great rating and a five-star review. It's little things like that that really help us grow this show. So if you're a fan, I'm not asking you for money, although you're feel free to send us money too. But what I really need you to do is help us get this show out there. Help us get it to more people. And the simple way you can do that is giving us reviews on iTunes, sharing it on Facebook, sharing it on your social media, and come join the conversation with us. Find us over on Twitter at Lions of Liberty. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. And if you really want to get in depth with us, Join the conversation, communicate with myself, many of my other Lions of Liberty cohorts, several of my past guests even, then come on over to the Lions of Liberty Forum. That's our private Facebook group. You can just type Lions of Liberty Forum into your Facebook search bar and you should get right over there. Or if you can't have trouble, go over to lionsofliberty.com slash 174. We always link to the private Facebook group in the show notes. Now, as I mentioned with the new format, in just two days is our next episode on Wednesday, and I think I'm going to kind of keep it a surprise for now. It's only two days away, so not much of a wait, but we're aiming to have a little something special on Wednesday. And of course, on Friday, we'll have the second edition of our brand new regular podcast, the Felony Friday Podcast, hosted by John Odermatt. Until then, live long and live free.